El Fanboy, episode 18. Hollywood is a land of shiny objects, where fads become directives, directives become hit movies, hit movies become products, and once the products start to suffer because the assembly line they're coming off of is missing that human touch, suddenly what started off as cool and fresh and exciting has now become a lifeless corporate shell that no one wants anything to do with. Over the course of the last 10 years, cinematic universes have become all the rage. Since 2008, we've heard about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the DC Extended Universe, the Spider-Man Universe, the X-Men Universe, the Star Wars Galaxy, the Transformers Universe, the Matrix Universe, J.K. Rowling's Magical Universe, and last week, we got to see the first entry of the Dark Universe. Now, what qualifies a universe? Well, unlike the old days where a franchise simply meant you'd get Lethal Weapon 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, now it means that, yes, you'll get Lethal Weapons 1 through 5, but you're also going to get Lethal Weapon Origins. You're going to get Murtaugh Tries Viagra, a Lethal Weapon story, and a TV series called The Martina Riggs Files about Martin's daughter and how she becomes a cop, and you'd better watch the season one finale because Mel Gibson makes a cameo at the end as Riggs Sr. See, the idea of the universe means you have this big canvas, a shared world, where you can tell a number of stories across multiple mediums in a non-linear way, And it's all part of a greater tapestry. And while the idea of that is super exciting for geeks and fanboys, the problem is that the folks in power who want them don't care about the storytelling possibilities. They view all of that in in a way that boils down to one thing, multiple revenue streams. That's all it is for them. How can I make this thing successful enough that it'll get me movie dollars, toy dollars, TV dollars, literary dollars, and animation dollars? Let's take a look at how they've all fared. The Marvel Cinematic Universe stands mightily at the top of the mountain. For all intents and purposes, they led the charge in terms of the modern-day shared universe concept. Their movies have pretty much all been successful. Some have even gone onto all-time box office lists. But the pendulum may very well start to swing back the other way. Just like with everything that was once cool, there's a growing backlash that is just waiting to be unleashed. What were once whispers, their villains suck, the movies all look, feel the same, they're too comedic, are starting to become more vocal. Now, to their credit, Marvel is trying to stay one step ahead of the backlash, as evidenced by the release of films that are visually bolder and that cover new territory. Just look at the trailers for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Thor Ragnarok, and Black Panther. You know, they're trying to shake things up, but only time will tell if the tweaks that they're making to the Marvel formula will be enough to keep them on top. Then there's DC, you know, which has kind of taken a slow and steady wins the race approach. Man of Steel did respectable numbers, but was divisive in terms of its critical and fan responses. Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice was 
a critical failure that was even more divisive and it underperformed at the box office. Suicide Squad was another critical failure, which was slightly less divisive because of its more playful tone and the fact that it didn't deal with as many sacred characters and managed to be fairly profitable because it cost less and had less at stake. But now they've got Wonder Woman, which has the whole world swooning over it. And now we wait to see if that love affair gets extended towards the DC brand itself and bolsters Justice League or stays aimed specifically at Wonder Woman. Regardless, DC has made it pretty clear that no one film carries the whole franchise on its shoulders. If one falters, the next one is still coming, and they'll just sort of tweak things as they go. Warner Brothers has seemingly adapted uh, an in-for-a-dime, in-for-a-dollar mindset for now when it comes to DC. Then there was the Spider-Man universe, where Sony was planning on making Andrew Garfield-led Amazing Spider-Man movies for the next six years, while also mixing in Sinister Six, Venom, a female Spider-Woman type of movie, and even an Aunt May movie. In their case, they didn't have DC's long game in mind. As soon as Amazing Spider-Man 2, the supposed launch pad for that universe, came out and didn't do so well... They scrapped all that and ran to Marvel to make a deal. Now, there's still talk of all these Spidey spinoffs that are starting to reemerge, but we'll just have to see how all that plays out. For now, it's safe to say that their original Spidey universe has been scrapped, since their rumored Spidey spinoffs won't even have Spider-Man in them. The X-Men universe is kind of a mystery, too. You know, one could argue they've actually been at it longer than Marvel Studios. They were the first to go, okay... So we've got this hit series, let's make movies in between the main entries that focus on individual characters and act as prequels that flesh out their solo stories. To that end, there was X-Men Origins Wolverine, and there was the scrapped Magneto movie that ended up becoming X-Men First Class, but while they were the first to really kick around that concept, the results have been so hit or miss that people don't know how to feel about the X-Men universe. One minute they hate it, you know, X3, X-Men Origins, X-Men Apocalypse. The next they love it, First Class, Days of Future Past, Deadpool, and Logan. Now they've got two TV series, one of which will tie in directly to the movies with the pilot being directed by Brian Singer. And they've got two X-Men movies set to film this year with three others, Deadpool, to X-Force, and Gambit, also in the pipeline. But no one has any idea what to expect from this universe. The quality control has been all over the place, and it's hard to say whether or not they've got it all figured out or not. And then there's Star Wars, which ever since Disney bought Lucasfilm has been on, a, on the verge of a massive expansion. And it's not wholly unorganic, mind you. The, the Star Wars universe has always been multifaceted. But cinematically, the focus always has been on the proper episodic saga. Now, they're trying to expand that further with these Star Wars stories. Standalones like Rogue One and the upcoming Young Han Solo. And while Rogue One was a decent hit, it made almost exactly half what the Red Hot Force Awakens made not a year before it. Episode 7 made just about $2 billion. Rogue One made just about $1 billion. 
Nothing to sneeze at, but it does seem to send the message that fan excitement for these standalones isn't as astronomical as it is for the episodes. While there's reason to believe that Episode 8, The Last Jedi, will rule 2017 when it comes out in December, there's almost zero buzz for that young Han Solo movie. Why didn't that movie even make its presence felt at Star Wars Celebration last month? It's kind of puzzling, and you have to wonder what Lucasfilm is thinking these days in terms of either continuing the episodic saga past Episode 9 or making nothing but Star Wars stories, because... I'm really not sure the interest is there. With regard to the Transformers, Rowling, and Matrix universes, um, universes, I can't comment. You know, they're all in their infancy, and one hasn't even produced a movie yet. For now, we know that the next Transformers comes out in two weeks, and it will theoretically plant the seeds for the Bumblebee spinoff and other sequels. The folks running the Rowling universe are busy rebranding the next Fantastic Beasts as more of a Harry Potter prequel than a pure spin-off after the first film didn't touch any of the Potter movies' opening numbers. And the Matrix plans are still being made up as we speak. The most pressing universe to speak of, though, is the Dark Universe, naturally. The Mummy just came out, and it bombed. It bombed hard. Look, they, they can try to sell it, as a victory all they want, but the budget for this movie was anywhere from $125 million to a reported $195 million, according to certain sources for Deadline, before marketing. If you're Universal, you can't be happy with a movie like that opening to horrendous reviews, a B-minus cinema score from fans, and a less than $32 million opening. As I said last week, the situation reeks of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 happening all over again, and both situations have Alex Kurtman in common. The big difference this time seems to be that while Sony backed off of their plans after Amazing Spider-Man 2 underperformed, Universal seems intent on pushing forward despite Mummy bombing. They seem to be taking the DC model to heart, where they're in for a dime, in for a dollar. No one movie can determine the franchise's fate. But at least in DC's case, their movies were making a ton of money. Yeah, they weren't very profitable, but they were making a ton of cash. In Universal's case, The Mummy is set to drop like a stone in the coming weeks because of its simultaneous worldwide release, meaning the film has nowhere to go, and the word of mouth is going to destroy it. And before anyone says, how can you say that? It's Tom Cruise's biggest global opening. Remember, just like with Batman v Superman, that's a superficial inflated number. Because while, yes, it's the highest number, it's also opened in more places and on more screens all at the same time than his previous movies. So that's a purely cosmetic accolade. It's a marketing ploy so that they can promote the movie like it's a big deal leading into its second weekend. But it means nothing. So what does this all mean? Are our cinematic universes imploding? What does the future hold? In the last couple of weeks, Doug Lyman, Mark Hamill, and John Landis have had plenty to say about the landscape of these titanic universes that Hollywood keeps raging on about namely as it pertains to superheroes. So let's start with Doug Lyman. Doug Lyman, by the way, recently has walked away from two of these. He's walked away from the Justice League 
Dark movie, which is part of DC's world. And he also walked away from the X-Men world when he exited Fox's Gambit movie. So he recently was quoted as saying, one of the challenges that Gambit faces, and which is really kind of more a wide-ranging challenge, is he says, you know, it's a crowded field of superhero films. So the challenge for Gambit, or any of those other movies, it's finding its unique space and its unique take. Then there was Mark Hamill, who was talking about the superhero genre in particular. And what he had to say was, I don't know what's going on with superhero movies. They're fantastic, but I think we're reaching a point of oversaturation. So that's why the story is so important, is that the gimmicks and all that, they can only take you so far. That's what I want, better stories. Then there's director John Landis, who loved Wonder Woman, but while talking about the overall superhero landscape, had this to say. He said, I'm just, truthfully, I'm bored shitless with the Marvel Universe now. All the superhero movies tend to be interchangeable. You always have these mass destruction of cities and huge computer-generated extravaganzas to the point where you could take a reel from any of the Marvel superhero movies and put it in any of the others and nobody would notice. They're very well made, it's just that they're the same thing over and over again. But I don't know, people are showing up. One of the reasons Wonder Woman has been received so well by the critics is that it doesn't destroy cities. Even the superhero stuff is on a very human scale. It's the gods. We're not seeing skyscrapers tumbling. So that was John Landis's views on that. And the funny thing is, if you really think about what these three men who are in the know, if you think about what they're saying, they're all interchangeable, these critiques. They all work together to say the same basic message. Things are getting very crowded, very bloated, and audiences can sense that. Once you strip away the novel concepts and gimmicks of a shared world, once you strip off the, the shiny veneer of all these special effects and snazzy costumes, what's there? If this cinematic universe concept is going to work out, it's going to have to come down to unique takes, strong stories, and relatable stakes. That's what made Marvel's Phase 1 a success, if you want to go back to that point in time. Despite the underperformance of Incredible Hulk, Marvel's Phase 1 got that stuff right. The stories were more intimate, more character-driven, and the settings were pretty starkly different for First Avenger, for Iron Man, for Thor, and for Incredible Hulk. Then they capped off those four quieter stories with one big celebration that elevated everything with the Avengers. There was a big global threat that gave our heroes a reason to assemble, and there was a justification for how big everything got. But so many of the movies that have come out since from all of these different universes have tried to be the Avengers. So it's all becoming white noise at the end of the day. So let's look at the keys to success. For Marvel, I think we can look at Captain America the Winter Soldier as a shining example of what the MCU can do. It can be serious while still having a sense of humor. It can have something to say about the real-life world around us while still being good popcorn entertainment. It can explore a subgenre like political thrillers while still being a comic book flick. And it could stand on its own as a great singular movie. For DC, just as I said last week, Wonder Woman needs to be the template. Grand mythological storytelling with lots of heart 
and adventurous spirit and timeless themes of good versus evil. For X-Men, the model is equal parts Logan and Deadpool, because while they're totally different movies, they can be boiled down to the same thing. Great standalone movies that honor the characters they're adapting, put great emphasis on their personal stories, and don't necessarily feel like they're part of something greater. They just have riveting leads, going through interesting circumstances, expressing their own unique voices, voices that have given them legions of fans for decades now. So keep the connections of the shared world loose while shining the spotlight almost entirely on what makes these characters special. For the Dark Universe, be bold, make a choice, and stick to it. The Mummy suffered because it didn't know what it wanted to be. Was it a thriller, a horror flick, an action comedy? You can tell it was focus-grouped to death, tried to please everyone, and ended up pleasing no one. So their key to success here is to be bold and not just make movies that scream, please like me. Everything you've ever liked in other movies is in me. Like me. And the overarching key to all of them, make sure each movie is good enough on its own, that the characters are well-written, the stories are interesting, and the stakes are relatable, so that the shared universe aspect is merely a bonus and not the main selling point. The Mummy just proved that audiences simply don't give a damn anymore that your movie is part of something greater. So just make your movies great. Period. We're going to kick off our look at the week's big news for this 18th episode of El Fanboy the way we always do, with a look at the box office. So, it's Tuesday, the weekend actuals are in, and remember folks, the actuals are often a little bit different than what you hear on Sunday and Monday, because now we actually have the official tallies, not just estimates. So let's look at how things did. Number one is Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman made $58.5 million. So it's actually, uh, what's that? $1.3 million higher than people had said. Originally, on Sunday, they were saying 57.2 mil for the film. It actually is 58.5, which means that that amazing drop of only 45% is actually only a drop of about 43%. All right, can you guys believe that shit? Wonder Woman only dropped 43.3%. That's unbelievable. Now, before we get to number two, let's just look at how Wonder Woman is doing, because this is exciting. If you're someone who's been waiting to see DC sort of turn the corner here, Wonder Woman is giving you an awful lot to be optimistic about. So right now, Wonder Woman, the way, she, the way she stacks up against Man of Steel, which is probably the only real comparison we can make within the DCEU, because it's the only other solo you know, superhero or origin story that they've told so far in the DC Extended Universe. So right now, through 10 days, uh, domestically, Wonder Woman has already made $206.3 million. Meanwhile, Man of Steel, through 10 days... Uh, had made 210. So that's pretty damn close. There's only a $4 million differential there for Wonder Woman. That's, you know, that's looking very good. And on top of that, when you consider the fact 
that the word of mouth on Wonder Woman is much, much better than it was than, uh, on Man of Steel, this thing is going to have legs. And we're going to discuss this a little more later, but this upcoming weekend, you know, I don't think it offers that much in terms of competition. It's not going to repeat at number one because, you know, there's a Pixar movie coming out. But there's nothing coming out that I feel like is going to kill Wonder Woman. You know, that that is not going to happen until the following week when Transformers comes out. But for now, you know, Wonder Woman is, is, is I have a feeling it's going to definitely surpass Man of Steel. And it's going to be like the first real, you know, notch in the win column for Warner Brothers and the DCEU. So good for them. Um, and mind you, it's actually like it, it kind of worked out that DC is going to ha- essentially have two Wonder Woman windfalls in a single year. You know, if you think about it, because they've got Wonder Woman becoming a sensation right now around the world in the month of June. Then in November, all the audiences that got excited about her in June, they get to see her again in Justice League. You know, usually when you fall in love with a character, you have to wait at least a year to see them again. But everyone gets to basically continue. You know, Justice League can really sort of piggyback on Wonder Woman's success. And I think... That's one of the main things that they're addressing in these reshoots. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot more Wonder Woman in Justice League now that Warner Brothers and Jeff Johns and everyone sees how well everyone is taking to Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. Um, But we'll, we'll get some more on that later when we actually talk about those reshoots a little bit. So now let's go ahead and talk about number two. So number two is The Mummy. So the weekend actuals actually show that it made less than everyone had thought. Originally, it was said to have made something like 32.2 million or something like that, or 32.3. The actual figure is 31.7. So that's not, that's not looking so hot. It is a bad, bad number. Uh, the Dark Universe is really, it has stumbled out of the gate And there are now some words from people in the know about what this means for the dark universe. So first of all, someone from Universal, his name is Nick Carpow or Carpu, was speaking to The Hollywood Reporter and basically insisting that the future of the dark universe doesn't hinge on the mummy's success. Um, He says the dark universe is a continuation of a love affair the studio has had with its classic monsters. It is a valentine to the genre that is in our DNA. Um, You know, it's they're going to keep going. Like I said in the opening monologue, they're going to push on. But no one's happy about this. Uh, an analyst from Exhibitor Relations, his name is Jeff Box, said, I don't think Universal's Dark Universe will collapse because of the mummy underperforming, but it should make the studio think twice about pumping so much money into their vastly expanding universe. There will be a lot riding on Bride of Frankenstein. And when I say a lot, I mean everything. So that's that's interesting. Um, and then the other, the, there are some recent comments too. Uh, by the way, I'm going to totally just move on from, from box office here because I'm not, the other, the rest of the top five doesn't even matter. We're going to spend some time talking about the dark universe, talking about, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit spoilery, but not, you know, I don't think any of you are going to see it. If you haven't seen it yet, you shouldn't bother. But, 
Um, we're going to talk about just what Alex Kurtman, Kurtzman is saying about the movie. And one of the reasons I think it is just totally not connecting with audiences and not doing what they had hoped. Something I addressed in my video review that I don't know if you guys have seen, if you haven't seen it yet, you should go check it out, was the the, the lack of an arc for Tom Cruise's character and, and the way it really shows how like this thing got rewritten and overwritten to death. There, there's basically a fleet of writers who worked on this movie. It's not written by one guy, it's not written by two guys, it's written by like five uh, so you have five guys with the screenplay credit. You have four guys with uh, with story credit. You know, Tom Cruise brought in Christopher McQuarrie at some point to do a polish. Like th there was a lot of work put on this script. And there was a quote from Alex Kurtzman going around now that I find like alarming. The disconnect between what he's talking about and what's in the movie. It's unbelievable. So he has this quote in here where he says, this is the story of a monster of a human being who has to be a monster in order to find his humanity. That was a cool organizing principle. Um, what the fuck are you talking about, Alex? Tom Cruise is never depicted as a monster of a human being. That's one of the fundamental flaws of the movie and of the storytelling. Perhaps in one of the initial drafts of the script, he's like that, but in the actual finished product, He's basically a cool, nice, likable guy. He's the lovable scoundrel. He's the Indiana Jones type. Yeah, he seems a little bit on the selfish side, but he never once seems like a monster of a man. And whenever they reference him being some sort of asshole, some sort of prick, some sort of piece of, you know, um, I'll just say it, piece of shit. This is my podcast. I forget that I curse sometimes. Um... You know, the only way that we know that he's any of those things is because every once in a while, someone will say it in the script. Someone will reference what a scoundrel he is. But we never actually see him being a scoundrel. We see him doing nice things. Early on, there's a sequence there where, like, he does something very selfish, and he kind of gets some people into trouble, and he, he creates uh, a tough situation. And instantly, he goes to bat for the guy that he almost screwed over. There's a sequence there where his best buddy is getting chewed out by a general because of something that Tom Cruise's character did. And Tom Cruise interjects and says, just so you know, my friend here was totally against this and he's the one who saved my life. And I think he deserves a special uh, commendation for, for what he did today. So it's like he goes to bat for his friend after kind of mildly dicking him over a little bit. Throughout the whole movie, he's basically shown to be a pretty nice guy, kind of that typical Hollywood archetype of the lovable scoundrel with the heart of gold, you know? So this idea, that's why, like, that quote for me is, is, is unbelievable. The fact that Kurtzman refers to that character as a monster of a human being who has to be a monster in order to find his humanity. The reason that pisses me off so much is because that sounds much more interesting than what we got. But you guys didn't actually have the balls to execute on that concept. All you did was, all right, well, you know, we have Tom Cruise. Let's just make him be likable Tom Cruise guy because we want this to make Mission Impossible numbers. And if we kind of show Tom Cruise being an asshole, then, you know, maybe that, that might hurt the film's prospects. So in doing so, you neutered the fucking movie. You took any personality or any reasonable arc out of what Tom Cruise's Nick Morton could have been. 
and the whole thing just falls flat on its face because you have a likable guy going through interesting circumstances and ending up sort of just likable in the end. Instead of going through this tragic arc where in the end he has to damn near sacrifice his life and find his humanity and become the hero he was always destined to become in these unbelievable circumstances. That doesn't happen in this movie. So reading this quote from him is just like, I wish I could see the movie that this could have been before Universal and whoever got their hands on it and mangled it and turned it into a toothless, just so-so mediocre affair. It's really sad. It's really, really sad. Um, but again, it doesn't look like this is going to derail the Dark Universe. You know, it, it, it's a critical failure. It's The fans don't like it. They gave it a B-. That's not a good cinema score. But they're going to push forward with The Bride of Frankenstein. They're going that DC route where no one movie defines us. But I'm telling you right now, if The Bride of Frankenstein doesn't fix everything, if The Bride of Frankenstein doesn't pull a Wonder Woman, there will not be any more Dark Universe. And we're not going to get to see Javier Bardem as uh, as Frankenstein. We're never going to... That rumor of Dwayne Johnson as the Wolfman, that shit ain't going to happen. All that stuff is going to go right out the window if Bride of Frankenstein doesn't hit. And how do they make Bride of Frankenstein a hit to begin with? Is there an audience for this stuff? I used to think there was, but I don't know if I trust these guys to find it or to have the discipline to bring that vision to life. So I got to tell you, I for months, I've been covering this dark universe... Uh, for, I don't know, two years now. And I was like excited. I wanted to see where they went with this. This could have been something quite special. And I'm just like, as a, as a fan and as, as with my little fanboy heart, I'm just really, really crushed by the, what a fucking mess this turned out to be. Um, and just to kind of give you another just example, like I meant to mention this in my review, but I'm just going to throw it in here. Um, you can always tell when a film has been overwritten and reworked when there are parts of the film that you could remove and it wouldn't affect anything. And that is the case with Tom Cruise's sidekick character, the, the comic relief. Some of the stuff that happens with him throughout the movie, you can tell that it was wedged in there to add some of that like Marvel levity, some of that like, you know, action, comedy, bromance sort of stuff, the sort of like off the wall humor. You know, he's literally he's thrown in there in a few key sequences. If you were to remove everything about that character past the past the film's first 15 minutes, the movie would not be different. And you see that a lot. So just keep that in mind when you're seeing one of these big blockbuster movies and you're wondering, I wonder what was reshot. I wonder what was changed. When you're going to see movies like Rogue One, when you're going to see movies like Justice League, when you're going to see movies that have had a lot of work put on them to make sure that when they get into the theaters, they maximize their profitability. I want you to watch and when it's all over, ask yourself about certain key things. Hmm, if that character didn't exist at all, would the movie had done anything? And if the answer is no, if it, you know, in other words, it ha, you know, if, if if you deduce that it wouldn't affect the final story being told, that means you've basically just identified something that was added in post, something that was there to either add some humor, 
something that was there because it needed, quote unquote, more action or it needed, quote unquote, more romance. Whenever you find things that are just kind of there but don't really serve a purpose except to just make you feel a certain way for a few seconds, you as Joe Blow filmmaker, a film goer, just identified the stuff that the suits had them add in post. That's a, that's a little cheat sheet I just gave you for how to find the shit that was thrown in there at the last second. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think that's all I want to say about The Mummy. It's just such a bummer. Uh, actually, there is one more thing, since I'm, go- I'm doing this stream of consciousness style. Um, by the end of the movie, they kind of make this idea of Tom Cruise returning at some point. And to me, the whole thing seems ludicrous because without getting too specific, they've basically turned Tom Cruise's character into a superhero, into a being with damn near infinite powers of controlling life and or death. And, you know, they kind of tease you towards the end that like, you know, he's going to be... You know, one day we may need to call upon him to stop a monster because sometimes it takes a monster to stop a monster. But again, A, he was never really a monster. But B, there are no other monsters conceivably in this universe that could ever go toe-to-toe with Tom Cruise's character after what they did to him. He's so overpowered. It's almost like the issue that comes up in DC where you have Superman. So here's this guy with damn near infinite powers who can kill and destroy anything in his wake. He's basically the trump card. He's basically, you know, once he enters the fight, the fight is over. And to me, that was just another area where I was just like, really? You're trying to get us excited for the idea of, of Cruz's character returning when there's no one else that you could possibly introduce that would be more powerful than him. So how the fuck are you going to make that return compelling? How are you going to make that confrontation compelling when you have a guy who's basically a demigod uh, just kind of just kind of lurking in the shadows? And now every time a monster does pop up and wreak havoc in the world, you're going to wonder, well, why isn't Nick Morton, that's Tom Cruise's character, why isn't Nick Morton showing up to save the day? Just such a mess. Uh, just such a mess. But um, all right, I'm moving on. No more mummy. No more Dark Universe. Let's talk a little bit about DC, shall we? Because uh, there have been rumors for a while now of Army Hammer being involved in some way, shape, or form. You know, we've heard him rumored to be Green Lantern. We've heard him rumored to be Nightwing. We've heard him rumored to, you know, the Dark Universe. Um, dark, dark Universe. See, it's, it, it's, it's, it's implanted itself on my brain. No, that uh, Dwayne Johnson, not Dark Universe, uh, that Dwayne Johnson would like him to play Shazam. Um, so, you know, his name keeps coming up with these DC properties. And finally, you know, someone went, you know, found some answers from him about this sort of stuff. Because he's part of Cars 3, which opens up on Friday. And naturally, when you're part of a superhero franchise, even when you're out promoting non-superhero movies, people are going to ask you questions about your comic book flicks. So someone asked him about all that and what it was like to be singled out by The Rock. And Army Hammer said, dude, so Dwayne said that thing and literally blew up my social media. I couldn't even open my Instagram. I thought my phone was going to melt. But other than that, no one said anything. Yeah, I'm keeping my options open. So 
it sounds like, according to him, he's he's downplaying all this sort of stuff. He's saying it's just, you know, it's more of a fan thing. Yes, Dwayne Johnson said that, but it, there's nothing going on, um, which is not true. <laughs> I, I because this stuff actually predates Dwayne Johnson, because um, the this Dwayne Johnson stuff began on May fifteenth. That's all very recent. These rumors began way back in December. If you recall, Joe Manganiello, uh, who was busy talking up the Batman at the time. This is before Batman you know, lost Ben Affleck, before it gained Matt Reeves, and before the script was sent back for a page one rewrite. He was busy kind of going around talking up, playing Deathstroke, and, and how awesome it was going to be to be in the Batman movie and all that sort of stuff. Right around the time when he's busy talking about all this DC stuff and how well it's going... He posted a picture with Army Hammer, and it says, burning the midnight oil. And you see the two of them, you know, up late, seemingly, you know, they're looking at a laptop or a tablet. And it kind of gave the impression that they were working on something DC-related, especially because Jeff Johns got involved, and he started following Army Hammer. I think he, like, retweeted that tweet. He got involved in some way. So right then and there, that's where this came from. It didn't come from Dwayne Johnson. Um... And Army Hammer sort of addressed that in a, as the quote continues. Here's what he said, and then I'm going to tell you why I think it's bullshit. He said, uh, what an embarrassment of riches to have all of these choices. The funny thing is, is nobody has ever come to me and been like, uh, my agent has never called and said, Army Warner Brothers has been talking to me. There, there's really interest in you, this whole thing. Never. In fact, after there was like a, when the Green Lantern stuff first kind of started, which I think is Jeff John's fault because he like followed me on Twitter or something and everybody was like, what does that mean? So uh, how did that happen? Um, I called my agent after it had been going on for like a week or two. It had been going on for a little bit. I called my agent. I was like, man, have you heard anything from like DC or anything? And he was like, no. I was like, nothing? He was like, no. I was like, not one thing. And he was like, no, why? I was like, nothing about Green Lantern? And he was like, no, nothing. And I was like, all right, that's it. That's the end of it. So listen, if you will recall, this sort of thing is par for the course. Actors have basically thrown up these kinds of denials, these kinds of you know playful, hey, you know, I'd be up for it, but nobody's spoken to me kind of things a whole bunch of times. You know, if you want to look at what happened in Marvel, in the Marvel world with Paul Rudd for a very long time there, he was in full-on denial mode about being an Ant-Man, and then all of a sudden it was announced he was Scott Lang and he was an Ant-Man. And then even right here with, with Army Hammer and Joe Manganiello's DC brethren, you've got Jason Momoa, who basically played the same sort of play out of the, out of the handbook when addressing Aquaman rumors for a very long time, he was saying essentially that he'd be down for it, but there's nothing to it. These are just rumors. It's a fan thing. No one has actually spoken to me. There's nothing official. He more or less played things off in the same sort of off the cuff, playful denial sort of way. I have a feeling that he shot like a top secret cameo that's going to happen towards the end of Justice League. And I think he is going to be Hal Jordan. I have a feeling that's where they're going with this. But then again, you start wondering about why was he with Joe Manganiello? Isn't he more going to be in the Batman universe? You know, I just feel like no matter what, 
I think he is going to end up in a DC movie. And right now he's just being told by the DC brass to just deny, 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 because if people know that you're in this, that it might spoil something that's about to happen. That's what I think. And that's why I think it's more Justice League related. You know, we have these reshoots going on. I have a feeling that what's in the works here is he's going to show up in Justice League. That's just, that's what I think. Um, Moving on to other Justice League and DC-related news, there's some interesting photos that just surfaced on the net from the reshoots, which seemingly point to the fact that there's going to be a lot of Wonder Woman involved with these reshoots. Uh, Basically, set photos that look like they're from uh, like a flashback sequence that show a plane that have the like that German logo on. It was kind of like the plane that 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 Steve Trevor stole, you know, Chris Pine stole in Wonder Woman. Uh, it looks like it's World War One era set stuff. And that's where I think, you know, when it comes to the reshoots, I think they're going to be interjecting some extra Wonder Woman stuff. They might even be trying to find a way to get Steve Trevor in there since they, I, I see that plane and I instantly think about when he takes the plane in Wonder Woman. That's not really a spoiler. It's just, you know, part of what happens. Um, so yeah, the, the, uh, that's what, I, the, that's what's being worked on right now. And I just thought you guys should have that little update on these justice league reshoots. I have a little more to t- say about that stuff later. Um, but in terms of the making of wonder woman too, there was just a, a fun little quote from uh, Ewan Bremner who was talking about how like tricky it was to recreate that photo the, the photo that we see in Batman v Superman, uh, when they actually shot Wonder Woman, they had to recreate the taking of that photo. And here's what he said. He said, uh, it meant that when we eventually got around to shooting the scene that the photograph is from, we had to really painstakingly recreate it because we took the photo against a half-built set. In a way, sets were still being built at that point. So by the time we came around to filming that scene probably around five months later, the sets were much more developed. So we had to find a way to recreate the exact same image after a half year had gone by. So that's just kind of fun in terms of like the making of the movies. And while we're on the subject of Wonder Woman, and since it's now been about a week and a half since the film came out, I do want to delve into one sort of spoilerish thing. So this is kind of your spoiler warning Uh, I will say, though, that I'm not going to get too much into the specifics, so you could still listen if you want. It doesn't really... um, I'm not going to reveal anything that shouldn't be obvious, but I'm just going to talk a little bit right now about why that third act didn't really throw me for the kind of loop that I thought it might. Um, Yeah, because a lot of people warned me. They warned me, oh, that third act is going to be very bloated and you're going to hate it just like you hated the third act of Man of Steel, just a lot of CG and a lot of things exploding and yada, yada, yada. But I'm like, you know what? I actually really enjoyed it because I I, I liked that she's fighting the very idea of war. It's a very symbolic third act. You know, she's fighting the idea of war and the way that it corrupts all of us, or at least it tries to corrupt all of us. The villain in that closing sequence is a metaphor for all of humanity's flaws. And meanwhile, she is like the stand-in for love itself, 
for love and compassion itself. And there's an interesting little character moment there in the middle of it where this corrupting force tries to corrupt her, tries to get her to do something that would betray her own principles. You know, this villain is able to manipulate. This villain is able to sort of bring out your inner darkness and get you to do things that you really shouldn't do because it plays to the darkness in your soul. And this villain tries to do that to Diana, and Diana... wrestles with that for a moment, but ultimately makes the choice to not be corrupted and to do the right thing. So to me, like the fact that like that's one of the centerpieces of it too, for me, it it grounds the whole thing in something that I really appreciated. So, and on top of that, it wasn't about the world ending. It wasn't a city being destroyed. It was more or less a one-on-one battle on an airfield. And, you know, it just... For all the people who are worried about that third act or, or wonder how it is that I could have enjoyed that CGI slugfest when I dislike so many others, it's because I really liked the idea of it. I thought it was a surprisingly powerful, surprisingly poignant final battle. It wasn't just there just to blow shit up. I liked what it, what it stood for. And for me, as long as I, I can buy into the themes and what it stood for, I don't mind when the third acts are a little bit on the bigger, sort of overblown side of things, all right? Um, Wonder Woman was awesome. But anyway, okay, uh, moving right along. Uh, Deadpool, there's some updates on Deadpool 2, just a little thing, just, just like a little thing here. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw Josh Brolin update, you know, uploaded a video of him working out. He's getting all kinds of jacked. And he also revealed his new haircut, his new cable haircut. Um, and it's, it's just pretty funny because like, I consider Josh Brolin a fairly serious actor. You know, he's been in some, some heavy stuff. When you think about like No Country for Old Men, you know, he's 49. You'd think by now he, you know, he would be a little bit like not really into all this comic book stuff. But Brolin's got to be a fanboy. You know, I don't know if everyone has ever taken the time to just really think about that for a sec. But he's, in, he's been in Jonah Hex. He was in Sin City, too. He's playing Thanos in the MCU. He's playing Cable in Deadpool 2 and presumably X-Force. And he was very close to playing Batman before they ultimately went with Ben Affleck. So this is a guy who, he, he must be a nerd. He must be a geek like us. So that's pretty damn cool. And he seems to be getting really into this cable stuff. So I just kind of thought that was cool how dedicated he is to the prep for becoming cable. Um, then over in Spider-Man Homecoming Land, there's also, you know, there's all this chatter about who Zendaya is playing you know, for a while, we've known that the characters listed as Michelle. I personally have never thought that we should read too much into that. I think she's just playing Michelle. Because why would you keep her character a secret unless, you know, maybe she's a villain and you don't want to reveal what villain she turns out to be? You know, because people who said she's Mary Jane, that's a crock of shit. Why would you keep that a secret? It's like, you know, you, you think you're spoiling something by letting fans know that Lois is in a Superman movie? So if she's playing Mary Jane, there would be no reason to conceal that. And yet there's still all this chatter about who is she playing. Last week, my boys at the um, at Splash Report, 
you know, they got their hands on some details from the supposed novelization of Spider-Man Homecoming. And in that, they, they seemingly uncovered the, her last name. So she's Michelle Toombs, which is just like uh, the Vulture's last name. So it got people thinking maybe she's the Vulture's daughter, and that's why they're keeping her a secret. Because if everyone knew she was a Toombs, and that would sort of telegraph one of the big surprises later on in the script. Um, I don't really care one way or the other. When I read the report, a splash report, I thought, oh, pretty cool. That's, you know, that's fine. But like in general, I don't get all of the intrigue about Zendaya's character. She's just a character in the goddamn movie. Uh, but now here we are with a debunked, you know, now there's a report that she's not Michelle Toombs and that that novelization that people were talking about was actually like a hoax or that people are misinterpreting what that means or so on and so forth. And I just kind of want to say in general that like, whether she is Michelle Toombs, whether she's not Michelle Toombs, who really gives a fuck? She's just a character in the movie. I don't get this obsession with who Zendaya is playing. We can rule out Mary Jane, but everything else, just who cares? Move on. Let's see the movie. Let's see who Michelle is and see why we should give a damn. Um, now we're going to move over to Star Wars. So Colin Trevorrow uh, was recently talking up the movie, and he had some interesting things to say, um, it's, it, namely uh, uh, with a recurring theme that I talk about a lot, namely in the superhero genre, but the theme of children and how like these stories should appeal to them and speak to them in an innocent way, the way they spoke to us when we first fell in love with Star Wars. So Colin Trevorrow said, Luke Skywalker... Han Solo, and Princess Leia were all characters that we were able to identify with in various ways, and especially with the character of Rey and what she means to young girls right now and the challenges that she's up against, it is extremely crucial that I understand what actual children are feeling about these stories that we're telling them. And I think it's important that I have kids, as, and, and if filmmakers don't have kids, they should go talk to them because they don't see things the same way that we did when we were kids. So yes, I am very dialed into that because I think it's a requisite of the job. Um, that's an interesting idea to me. Because um, if you recall, you know, George Lucas has been sort of vocal about the fact that like, you know, a lot of Star Wars of where it came from in his heart and in his mind came from his memories as a child of seeing those old, you know, pulpy serials about, uh, you know, uh, Flash Gordon, all that sort of stuff, you know, the stuff that sparked his interest in his imagination as a child. He would also consult with his kids about naming characters and all that sort of stuff. You know, Lucas always seemed to try to be connected with that childlike uh, love and curiosity and childlike nature. Um, so to hear Trevorrow trying to tap into that, I find pretty interesting. At the same time, you know, when I read the quotes about, like, you know, um, what Ray means to young girls and the challenges that she's up against, like, I just hope that it doesn't become too preachy and too sort of social justice warrior-y, because even though I get accused of that sort of shit all the time, I'm not one of these social justice people. I hope that things just happen naturally and organically, and he's not going to try to, like, force some sort of thing into the narrative to make a political statement. Uh, because while, you know, you, you kind of got the sense that in the original trilogy, 
you know, Luke has created these universal themes for these characters, these characters that have that millions of people have latched themselves to. But you don't get the sense he did it in a deliberate way. Like, I'm going to write Luke so that all these boys can like Luke. I'm going to write Leia so all these girls can like Leia. I'm going to write Han Solo so that scoundrels can like Han Solo. You know, he just wrote interesting characters. And him and he, he didn't write all those movies. He also had script writers. But, you know, when they were creating that original trilogy, that sort of stuff just happened naturally. So I hope that Trevorrow is not going to try to, like, reverse engineer this so that it speaks to certain demographics. That's, that's my only sort of concern with that quote. Um, and then just while speaking about what his goal is with uh, episode nine, that's the one that he's going to be doing that caps off the trilogy. He says, you know, my hope is to make it as richly satisfying as it could possibly be. I have a lot of support and a lot of really brilliant thinkers and storytellers around me. Uh, Kiri Hart and the Lucasfilm Story Group and Michelle Redwan and Kathy Kennedy, my producers and JJ and Ryan and Larry Kasdan. And when you look at this army of brilliant people that we have, it's not me alone. It's a whole team. So, you know, that's uh, he wants to make it satisfying. That's cool. I hope he's not necessarily thinking about it in terms of, again, thinking about the outcome. I hope he's thinking about more so how do I, I just make a good movie that will be satisfying, not thinking about how can I make a satisfying movie. Does it make any sense? I'm very weary about things that are trying to be reverse engineered. Maybe because I just saw The Mummy and I felt like that shit was, you know, they started one way and then reverse engineered the shit out of that movie to end up some other place. Um, while we're on the subject of Star Wars, there were some a little bit of quote-unquote controversy. You know, Mark Hamill recently spoke about, like, disagreeing with some of the stuff that Ryan Johnson had in mind for The Last Jedi. And he kind of clarifies that now. So here's what he told Variety at the Tony Awards on Sunday. He said, I got into trouble because I was quoted as saying to Ryan that I fundamentally disagree with everything you decided about Luke. And it was inartfully phrased, uh, he said. He went on to say, what I was was surprised at how, surprised at how he saw Luke. And it took me a while to get around to his way of thinking. But once I was there, it was a thrilling experience. I hope it will be for the audience, too. So, you know, it's interesting. It sounds like Ryan has a particular or had a particular outlook on Luke that the actor who's played him for all these years, Mr. Mark Hamill, didn't really see or necessarily agree with, but that this unique take grew on him and eventually he came, you know, he came to enjoy it. He came to be thrilled by it. Now, you know, that could just be lip service. Maybe he still disagrees and he just is trying to be a good soldier for Lucasfilm and he knows that it's not a good look to have one of your, you know, most iconic poster child actors saying that they disagree with the director of a Star Wars movie. But, you know, maybe we'll take this with, you know, we'll take this with a, a degree of, of, of optimism that he means that he really means it that while he didn't initially agree with this direction for luke he came around to it we shall see in the end um now you guys sent in a couple of questions uh, i'm going to address those questions now remember anyone who's listening you know feel free to tweet me at you know hashtag l fanboy 
and ask me questions, things that you'd like me to tackle on the podcast. So right now, we're going to tackle some of your questions, shall we? The first one is in reference to the Justice League reshoots. So uh, Tavo Borrego sent in the question, which goes as follows. Do you think that the JL reshoots have to do mostly with Superman, since Johns has already spoken about his tonal shift? Uh, here's the thing. I know I mentioned earlier that there's going to be like some extra Wonder Woman wedged into this movie, um, just to sort of capitalize on how hot she is right now, and how hot she is in general. Um, but I honestly, I don't think these reshoots have much to do with a specific character. Uh, I think this is more so about just tweaking the overall tone and feel of the movie. So, you know, to sort of answer your question, I don't think that these reshoots are here because someone said, this movie needs more Superman or this movie needs more Wonder Woman. I think it's more so about elements. You know, this movie needs more optimism. This movie needs more joy. This movie needs more humor. You know, I think that's more so what these reshoots are for. And that's why Joss Whedon is kind of the perfect man to, to oversee all that sort of stuff. Um, I really think he's being brought in to give the movie a little bit more of a heart and a little bit more of, you know, like I said a week or two ago, you know, lightness to counteract Zack Snyder's darkness. Um, so, no, I, I don't think this is a, a, an instance of we're, we, need to, we need more Superman. Uh, I know that Jeff Johns has been like, you know, like teasing that we're, you know, that the, the best is yet to come in terms of great Superman moments on the big screen. But I don't think he's trying to convey that that's what the purpose of these reshoots are. I think that's probably part of it. They're probably this, maybe they're going to give Superman one awesome sequence or they, you know, they're trying to sort of rehab his, 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 uh, his image after the first couple movies made him not necessarily the most likable hero. But I don't think this is about Superman in general. Um, and while we're on the subject of this, I just I kind of want to touch on my little Twitter uh, tirade that I went on. I, I went on a little like fan fiction uh, about how I would love to see Superman used in Justice League. And for those of you who don't follow me on Twitter, A, you fucking should. But B, I kind of want to recap what I would love to see. Uh, in, my, in my heart of hearts, I would get such a kick out of Superman essentially being kind of like what Hulk was to the first Avengers movie. You know, in other words, keep his screen time pretty limited, you know, but when he is on screen and he does get to do what he does best, have it be fucking awe-inspiring. You know, if you remember that about the first Avengers, there's really only two key Hulk sequences in the whole movie, but when they're happening... There, there, there's so much raw energy on the screen and he's doing things that only Hulk can do that it's very exciting. And a part of me, I just, you know, I would love it if like we barely see him throughout the movie. Every once in a while, there's like a cutaway, a kind of like little subplot looming about him, you know, slowly, you know, coming back from the dead. But his big moment would come somewhere in the third act as the Justice League has been fighting parademons and dealing with Steppenwolf's forces, and they've been doing pretty well, but all of a sudden now, they're cornered, and they're being surrounded. You know, there's forces on all sides of them, and there's a ship 
hovering above them, and they're thinking, how the hell are we going to get out of this? And then suddenly you hear that, you hear the sonic boom off in the distance, and they look out of the horizon, and Superman comes zipping right in, and he goes through a ship, kind of like a human missile, because only Superman can fucking do that shit. He goes through the ship, and it comes crashing down, and then using, in a quick, like, 10-second display, he uses all his powers. He uses his strength. He uses the, the heat vision. He uses the freezing breath to basically wipe out, like, a 100 parademons and help level the playing field in one full swoop as that Hans Zimmer music plays in the background, the Hans Zimmer theme. Man, that would be fucking... That would be beautiful. I think it would accomplish so much, you know? Oh, and he would land, right? Right alongside the team as, as like, the other ones who haven't really met him yet, like Cyborg and Flash, are sort of fanboying, quietly staring at him. And he looks pointedly at Batman and says, Miss me? That would fucking be amazing, because on top of that, it would address the shitty, stupid grudge that they had against each other in the last movie, which made so little sense to so many fans. It would be a total kind of like, how could you have ever doubted that I was the man and that my intentions weren't pure, you prick? Like, it would be kind of funny. So, listen, I know it's not going to happen, but that would be my ideal usage for Superman. That's how we would reintroduce him, sort of retcon the previous perception of him, and have him be, like, fun and awe-inspiring again. Because that's what he should be. He should be that, you know, that whole idea of, oh, yeah, you've got that? We've got a Superman. Make him awesome again. Um... Okay, next question came in from Mr. Aaron Verola. Aaron, I know you sent in two, but I'm not going to really address the one from last week because as you know and as you've mentioned yourself many a time, I'm really trying to not spoil The Last Jedi for myself. So I've been keeping away from anything and everything that could even resemble a spoiler when it comes to Episode Eight. So I know you want me to ask, you know, you, you want me to kind of go over what I think Last Jedi is about based on what we know. Uh, I'm trying not to think about it. I will just loosely say that I think it's going to follow the general sort of structure of Empire Strikes Back, where, you know, our main character, Rey, is off training to be, you know, to, to, to training with some sort of master. So in this case, it's Ray with Luke, just like it used to be Luke with Yoda. Meanwhile, there's a whole secondary main plot where Poe and Finn are off gallivanting around the universe, perhaps trying to track down the First Order or see where Kylo Ren ended up, and they're on their own little special mission. And basically, by the end, the two main stories will converge. That's all I really think and that's all I really want to know. I assume that there's, there's going to be twists. There's going to be things that play with our expectations, just as there are going to be things that play into our expectations. Hopefully, it's not as much of a retread of things we've seen, but in terms of basic structure, I think that's what we have to look forward to. If it's a two-hour movie, we're going to see about an hour and 15 minutes of our heroes off doing their own thing. One's training, and the other two are going around the world. 
going around the galaxy. And then towards that last act, both plot lines are going to converge. That's all I think is going to happen. That's all I want to think about is going to happen so I can be fucking shocked when other things happen uh, when I go see that movie in December. As for your actual question, the one that I am going to answer in some detail is you were asking about what I think Spider-Man Homecoming is going to pull off in terms of the box office. Um, So about, I don't know, a month and a half Let's see, this was May 12th, so almost exactly a month ago, there were some long-range predictions that came out from a site called Box Office Pro, and they are projecting that Spider-Man Homecoming is tracking for something around $135 million uh, for its opening weekend, domestically speaking. Um, In order to determine whether or not I agree with that, first, let's go ahead and look at all the previous Spider-Man movies that have come before it, okay, and compare it. So Sam Raimi's 2002 Spider-Man opened to 114.8 mil. Spider-Man 2 took a dip. Uh, Spider-Man 2, despite being arguably the most beloved of the series, of the original trilogy, actually only opened to $88 million. Then Spider-Man 3 came out, and that one eclipsed the first two. It made $151 million. Oddly enough, that's the one that everyone hated the most because of where Sam Raimi sort of took things there. Um, Then the reboot happened. So let's see, Spider-Man 3 occurred in 07, and then five short years later, Mark Webb's The Amazing Spider-Man came out to $62 million. Almost, you know, almost a third, you know, way less than half of what Spider-Man 3 had done. And then the sequel to the reboot, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, came out in 2014 to $91.6 million. Um, so that projection of 135 kind of made, you know, they seem to feel it's going to open somewhere between Spider-Man's 1 and 3 of the original trilogy and totally wipe its ass with The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. Here's what I think. Um, I think the most notable comparison isn't even necessarily the Spider-Man franchise. I think Spider-Man Homecoming is going to have a lot more in common with the Iron Man franchise than anything else. Um, If you think about it, Iron Man is sort of Marvel's A-list character at this point. You know, when they first launched the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it was on the back of Iron Man. And even though in the books he was always kind of a B-lister, who you know, no one can argue that Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, that, you know, that whole thing has been elevated. So Iron Man is an A-list. And if we look at his movies as sort of the model, I think that's where we see where Spider-Man is, gonna sh- is going to sort of end up. And oddly enough, I do kind of consider Spider-Man Homecoming kind of like a spiritual, you know, uh, follow-up to Marvel's Phase 1. It feels like a Phase 1 type movie, just in terms of tone, in terms of the way they're, they're, they're introducing Spider-Man to all of us. I feel like, you know, we haven't covered this sort of ground since Phase 1. 
because all these solos, uh, the solo debuts that have happened in the MCU since have been sort of bit players. You know, it was Ant-Man, it was Doctor Strange, and we can't count Guardians because that's an ensemble piece. So in terms of these like, you know, these solo introductory movies, there hasn't really been anything of Spider-Man's magnitude since phase one. So how did Marvel, you know, how did Iron Man do in phase one? Iron Man came out to $98.6 million. Then shortly thereafter, you know, that was in 08. In 2010, he came out with $128 million for Iron Man 2. And then in 2013, at the height of that character's popularity, Iron Man 3 opened to $174 million. I think the proper comparison here is Iron Man 2. That one made 128. I have a feeling that Spider-Man Homecoming is going to open to something around that. Because that is when Iron Man had cemented himself as the A-list of the MCU. You know, when he came out in 08 with that 98.6 mil, you know, they kind of had an uphill battle. They Yes, they were turning him into the face of the franchise, but there wasn't a lot of household recognition yet for him. When the household recognition kicked in and people acknowledged him as a big deal, which is when Iron Man 2 came out in 2010, that's when he made 130. Spider-Man, thankfully, has the luxury of already being that household name. He doesn't have to win people over. People already know this character and, for the most part, love this character. So I think something around 130 is accurate. So I don't know how Box Office Pro calculated their projection of 135, but I'm going to go ahead and say it's going to be around then also, just based on my comparison, which would be Iron Man. Uh, and namely Iron Man 2. So hopefully that answers your question, Mr. Varola. And now let's talk a little bit about what I've been doing with my fanboy self since we last spoke. So let's see, shows I'm watching, Silicon Valley, Veep, I'm all caught up on those. I haven't watched last night's Better Call Saul yet, but those are really the only shows I've been watching on the on the telly. Uh, I've also been just re-marathoning uh, Louie, I'm a huge Louis C.K. fan, and my wife never watched the uh, FX series. She likes his stand-up. I've gotten her into his stand-up, but uh, she's never watched the FX series, which I think is kind of a genius show. So I've been re-watching that with her because there was a warning there that on June 19th, Louis is leaving. Louis will no, no longer be on Netflix. I'm not seeing that warning anymore, but when we started our little marathon session last week, I noticed there was this little disclaimer just thrown up on the top left corner of the screen about Louie is leaving Netflix on June 19th. So we're trying to watch as much as we can in case that warning proves true and the series is leaving Netflix, which would make me very, very sad. Um, but now the big one for me in terms of how I've been you know, spending my time and, and diverting myself is The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. So this week... I finally made the uh, painful decision to beat the damn thing. I was stalling for a very long time, trying to do side quests and subplots and exploring the world and kept getting amazed at how much of the, the world I still haven't even found up until recently. And I finally felt like, you know what? I think I've covered enough ground. It's finally time to bring this baby home. And 
I got to tell you, I before I got into Hyrule Castle and finally faced Ganon and did all that stuff that I've been stalling on, I had like an emotional moment. Uh, I had read that when you get all tw- all 120 shrines, that you get access to the original tunic. You get the actual costume. You have the pants, the tunic, the cap. They call it, you know, the uh, outfit of the wild or something like that. And I had already, you know, with your optional quest, I had already gotten the Hillian Shield and the Master Sword, which you don't need in the game, but help if you do have them. And when I got that 120th shrine, and it was notified that I had to go someplace to pick up what is essentially my prize for having done that, I got a little bit like choked up. I'm like, oh my God. So I go over there and I see that there are three chests standing in front of this huge statue. I'm like, oh, so I guess the tunic is in one, the pants are in the other, the hat's in another. Oh God. I purposely paused. I took everything off of Link. I unequipped his shield. I unequipped his sword. I took off all of his armor so that he would just be in his underwear. Then I unpaused, and I had him walk up to each chest, open them up, and indeed, it was each aspect of the iconic green costume. And then, one by one, I equipped everything. I put on the pants. I put on the green tunic. I put on the cap. I put on the Hillian shield, and I equipped the master sword. And then when I unpaused... I used that little right joystick, which controls the camera, and I did this slow pan around the hero of time and all of his glory. And I was like, I had goosebumps. My heart was racing. I called my wife into the room. I'm like, Chris, look, it's the hero of time. And she looked at me like I was an asshole. <laughs> but I was, I was so overcome with this moment. Um... And then, yeah, then I went to Hyrule Castle, and I saved, and then yesterday I went and I did it. I went in there, I explored every nook and cranny of that castle, I found Ganon, I did the final boss battle, and now officially, Breath of the Wild is done for me. Uh, I don't know what to do with myself now, I know that there's some downloadable content coming. My birthday is in two weeks, so I'm having uh, someone give me as a gift the uh, the the season pass for all the DLC, so hopefully when that stuff starts to drop, I will have more reasons to go re-explore Hyrule. But for now, for that chapter is at last closed. I don't know what the hell I'm gonna do now, uh, what game I'm gonna play. Because even though I love to play, I, I don't consider myself like a huge hardcore gamer. I don't have to go from one game to another, but. So yes, I don't know what game I'm going to play next. I don't necessarily need to have something next. But what I need now is a way to fill the time. Because that was my way to fill the time for the last, oh, I don't know, four months. Whenever that movie, whenever that game came out. But yeah, so that was a biggie for me. Uh, and as for the things I'm watching, just quick updates. Uh, with Silicon Valley, I'm starting to get a little bit of fatigue there. It's starting to feel a little bit repetitive. Uh, if anyone else watches that, I'll let you know what you think. But Silicon Valley is starting, like, the structure of the show is starting to become almost like a parody of itself, where you can see exactly where it's going, because it keeps repeating the same general plot. 
where the guys think they're screwed. The guys find a way to turn everything around and then they end up screwed again by the end of the same 28 minute episode. Um, so I, I hope that they find a way to sort of shake things up because this last episode that occurred left me with a feeling of like, yeah, we've definitely covered this sort of ground many a time by now. So let's shake things up, fellas. Uh, your recommendation for this week. I don't know if you guys have been taking me up on them, but two weeks ago, I told you guys to see um, The Strangers. Uh, then last week, I told everyone to see Out of Sight. This week, my recommendation is a movie called Still Crazy. Uh, it was actually one of these, like, you know, foreign films, one of these British movies from the late, it's from the mid to late 90s that was part of that big wave of movies that, that came out and were a hit here because of movies like Train Spotting and The Full Monty. There was this whole little wave of films that crossed over that were British that actually had some success here because everyone suddenly wanted what Britain was cooking thanks to the work of, of Danny Boyle and then the guys who made Full Monty and all that sort of stuff. So Still Crazy is kind of part of that wave of films and like Waking Ned Divine and stuff like that. Still Crazy is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, it'll especially speak to you if you are a rock and roll fan. So Chris Lasanti, I know you are like me in terms of uh, in other lives, we were the front men for rock bands. Uh, Still Crazy is a definite, definite recommend to rock fans. And even beyond that, I just think it's a great story. It's got a very, very solid cast. Um, we're, we're talking about Bill Nighy kind of honing the character that we would go on to see him and do in Love Actually, of sort of like the washed up rock star. Uh, Still Crazy is sort of the rough draft of that. And what's cool about the movie is like, you know, it's basically just to kind of give you a, a quick summation. There's a rock band that was really big in the 70s. Then they broke up suddenly. And now 20 years later, there's reason for them to reunite for like a reunion tour or at least for a one last show to give the fans that finale that they've always wanted. And it's about, you know, why the band broke up, where they're at nowadays, and the dynamic of trying to rebuild and get the band back together again. It's funny. It's sweet. It's heartbreaking at times. Uh, it's just, I think, still crazy. Go see it. And I think that's enough about still crazy. Um, mm. Before I wrap things up with sort of the weekend forecast of movies that are coming, I also kind of wanted to share with you guys a fun little weird small world thing that happened with me last week with regard to The Mummy, of all things. Uh, on Tuesday, I was on my way to dance, uh, to dance school with my daughter. I don't go to dance school, but I was taking her to her dance school out in Long Island. And it's about 4.30, and I get a call from Kelvin. And Kelvin says, hey, uh, you know, I'm not going to do my Kelvin impression, but he uh, he had me slated to see an 845 press screening of The Mummy in the city at Times Square. And he said, you know, I actually, I'm, you know, there's been a change of plans for me. I'm going to go to the 745 at Lincoln Square because that is The Mummy's red carpet premiere and Tom Cruise is going to be there. And then he asked me if I wanted to come with him. And I'm like, shit, man, I would love to, but I can't. 
you know, A, I've already kind of rearranged my night so that I could make it to the 845 screening. And I have a meeting at seven o'clock in Elmhurst that I had already rescheduled so that I could make it to the 845 movie. So I couldn't have these people that I'm meeting with at seven suddenly just, all right, bye. I'm going to go see Tom Cruise now. You know, I couldn't dick them over twice in a single, you know, in a span of a couple of days. So I said, thanks for the invitation. As much as I'd love to go to the red carpet premiere, you know, I have to I have to finish here with my daughter at dance school. I have to have this meeting at seven. Then I'm going to go pick up Scully and we're going to go see the 845 mummy. So he's like, all right, cool, whatever. We hang up, take my daughter to dance school, go have my meeting at seven. I go into the city. I pick up Scully at about 745 and he gets into the car and he's like, oh, you know, what's pretty cool. A friend of mine went to the taping of Jimmy Fallon today and Tom Cruise was a guest on the show and he surprised the entire audience with uh, invitations to the red carpet premiere tonight of The Mummy. So, yeah, there was a bus outside and she got on the bus and now she's on her way. She's going to go see the red carpet premiere of The Mummy with Tom Cruise. And I'm like, shit, that's funny. I could have gone to that. But that's really cool that your friend, that this happened to her. That's awesome. Cool. Then me and Scully, we see the movie, whatever. I take him home. I'm driving home. It's like 11 o'clock at night. I don't feel like going home yet. I know my kids are asleep for school in the morning. I know my wife's asleep. And I'm sort of amped up. I'm energized. I don't feel like just coming home yet. So I'm like, you know, let me see what my buddy Joel is doing. I know he's a night owl. And he's someone who I could tend to like just call up at like 11 o'clock and we could arrange a hangout. And that's exactly what happened. He was around. I go, I meet up with him. We start talking about our nights, what I was doing, what he was doing. And he mentions to me he works in catering and he was catering an event at Lincoln Center. And then he mentions that, yeah, somewhere in the middle of that, the company got a call that they wanted him and a couple other people to head over to the AMC Lincoln Square Theater so that they can provide champagne for a toast that Tom Cruise is giving after the mummy. <laughs> so he was there holding the tray with the champagne flutes as Tom Cruise stepped out of the screening room, the same screening room where Kelvin was there watching the movie, where Scully's friend was in there watching the movie. Tom Cruise steps out, grabs a champagne glass off of Joel's tray and offers a champagne toast to everyone about the upcoming success of The Mummy and how proud he is of the movie and the team and yada, yada, yada. He was standing feet away from Tom Cruise during this. And all of this, as I'm taking it all in, has happened in the last seven hours. You know, at 4.30, I get that call from Kelvin. At 7.45, Scully mentions to me about the red carpet premiere and how his friend is there. And then at about 11.45, Joel is telling me how he's the one who gave Cruz the champagne for the toast at the red carpet premiere. I'm like, fuck, if I talk about this movie to one other person tonight, they're going to turn around and it's going to be Tom Cruise. You got to love it. This sort of stuff is the only stuff that could happen if you live in New York or Hollywood. You have to be one or two or the other. So I love being a New Yorker. This sort of shit can only happen here. But um, so we're going to wrap things up uh, with the weekend forecast. I don't think that Wonder Woman or the mummy really are going to face a lot of competition because the only real big fish that's coming out is Cars 3. 
And I have a weird feeling. I know it's a Pixar movie, so it's going to make bank. But I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit of a dud. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but the reviews, so far it's at a 65% at Rotten Tomatoes, which is very, very, you know, uncommon when it comes to Pixar. And I know Cars 2 also was kind of seen as a bit of a sour note. So it seems like, like this Cars franchise does not inspire an awful lot of love when it comes from the critics. And in general, I'm not feeling much buzz around it. And last night when I was having a brew, uh, I'm watching the TV and I see a commercial for Cars 3 where they're doing the thing where they show like the, 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 the critical raves, like a little quotes, you know, like so-and-so raves, it's a thrill ride. So-and-so raves, it's the best Cars movie. So-and-so. And right away, there's red flags going off everywhere for me because all the people they're quoting are nobodies from no-name publications or websites or like the Missouri affiliate of ABC type, like random shit. So when that's the best that you can come up with for your big, like, you know, buzzy commercial to get people excited about your movie that's opening, that tends to mean that the response is tepid at best and all the really good critics didn't like your movie. So I have a feeling Cars 3 is not going to be one of those runaway, like Finding Dory style, Disney, Pixar monsters. It's going to do okay. It's going to easily take the top spot, but it's not going to be one of these runaway hits that Disney and Pixar are known for. Uh, With that in mind, I have a feeling that because of that, Wonder Woman is going to hold strong in its third frame. Uh, it's probably going to pull in somewhere around $28 million. Uh, that would mean a drop of about 50%. Uh, I think this thing has the legs to do it. I really do. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's 28 29 even 30 uh, I would be very surprised if it's in the low 20s. So I have a feeling Wonder Woman will repeat somewhere in the upper 20s. Mummy, I'm predicting, will obviously drop to third place and will only make like 10 or $11 million. That's sort of what I think. I'm basing that off of the fact that if we look at other movies that have had this sort of horrendous critical response and bad word of mouth, they tend to drop somewhere around 70%, you know, 68%, 70% from one week to the next. So I do not see the word of mouth giving this movie a very strong second weekend. So The Mummy will take the third spot at around 10 uh, so that's just my projection from where I sit now on Tuesday. And I think that's it, guys. So once again, thank you guys for listening. Send in your questions uh, with the tweets that have hashtag LFanboy on them. If you have not yet done so, please head over to iTunes and review the podcast. Uh, right now, I'm still at a perfect five stars, so let's keep that going. And uh, that's it. Until next week. Adios. Adios.